Section 35 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by C.J. Byrne. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Chapter 10a, by Ludwig Schmidt. The Visigoths in Gaul, 412-507. to King Othulf had no intention of establishing a permanent dominion in Italy. As an occupation of Africa seemed hopeless, he turned towards Gaul in the year 412, probably making use of the military road, which crossed Mount Genevre via Turin to the Rhone. Here he at first joined the anti-emperor Jovinus, set up in the summer of 411, who had a sure footing, especially in Auvergne, but was little pleased by the arrival of the Visigoths, which interfered with his plans of governing the whole of Gaul. Hence the two rulers soon came to open strife, especially as Jovinus had not named the Gothic king co-ruler as he had hoped, but his own brother Sebastian. Athulf went over to the side of the emperor Honorius and promised, in return for the assurance of supplies of grain and assignments of land, to deliver up the heads of both usurpers and to set free Placidia, the emperor's sister, who was held as a prisoner by the Goths. He certainly succeeded without much trouble in getting rid of the usurpers. As, however, Honorius kept back the supply of grain, and Athulf, exasperated by this, did not give up Placidia, hostilities once more began between the Goths and the Romans. After an unsuccessful attempt to surprise Marseille, Athulf captured the towns of Narbonne, Toulouse, and Bordeaux by force of arms, 413. But a complete alteration took place in the king's intentions, obviously through the influence of Placidia, whom he took as his second wife in January 414. As he himself repeatedly declared, he now finally gave up his original cherished plan of converting the Roman Empire into a Gothic one, and rather strove to identify his people wholly with the Roman state. His political program was therefore just the same as that of the Ostrogoth king Theodoric, later on when he accomplished the founding of the Italian kingdom. In spite of these assurances, the emperor refused him every concession. Influenced by the general Constantius, who had himself desired the hand of the beautiful princess, Honorius looked upon the marriage of his sister with the barbarian as a grievous disgrace to his house. In consequence, Athulf was again compelled to turn his arms against the empire. He first appointed an anti-emperor in the person of Attalus, without, however, achieving any success by this move, since Attalus had not the slightest support in Gaul. When Constantius then blockaded the Gallic ports with his fleet and cut off supplies, the position of the Goths there became quite untenable, so that Athulf decided to seek a place of retreat in Spain. He evacuated Gaul after terrible devastation and took possession of the Spanish province of Terraconensis in the beginning of 415, but without quite giving up the thought of a future understanding with the imperial power. In Barcelona, Placidia bore him a son, who received the name of Theodosius at his baptism, but he soon died, and not long afterwards death overtook the king from a wound which one of his followers inflicted out of revenge in the summer of 415. After Athelwulf's death, the anti-Romanizing tendencies among the Visigoths, never quite suppressed, became active again. 
Many pretenders contended for the throne, but all, as it seems, were animated by the thought of governing independently of Rome and not in subjection to it. At length, Sigurek, brother of the Visigoth prince Sarus, murdered by Athelwulf, succeeded in getting possession of the throne. Sigurek at once had the children of Athelwulf's first marriage slaughtered, and Placidius suffered the most shameful treatment from him. However, after reigning for one week only, he was murdered, certainly by the instigation of Walia, who now became head of the Goths, autumn 415. Walia, although no less an enemy to Rome than his predecessor, at once granted the imperial princess a more humane treatment, and first tried to develop further the dominion already founded in Spain. But as the imperial fleet again cut off all supplies and famine broke out, he determined to take possession of the Roman granary in Africa. But the undertaking miscarried because of the foundering in the Straits of Gibraltar of a detachment sent on in advance, which was looked upon as a bad omen. 4.16. The king, obliged by necessity, concluded a treaty with Constantius, in consequence of which the Goths pledged themselves in return for a supply of 600,000 measures of grain from the emperor, to deliver up Placidia, to free Spain from the Vandals, Alans, and Sueves, and to give hostages. After fierce protracted fighting, the Gothic army overcame first the Selingian Vandals, and then the Alans, 416 to 418. But when Walia also wanted to advance against the Asdingian Vandals and the Swaves in Galicia, he was suddenly called back by Constantius, who did not wish the Goths to become too powerful, and land for his people to settle upon was assigned to him in the province of Aquitanica Secunda, and in some adjoining districts by the terms of a treaty of alliance. End of 418. Shortly after, Walia died and was succeeded on the Visigoth throne by Theodoric I, chosen by the people. Historical tradition is silent over the first years of Theodoric's reign. They were taken up with the difficulties of devising and executing the partition of the land with the settled Roman population. The Goths kept their national constitution and were pledged to give military assistance to the empire. Their king was under the supreme command of the emperor, he only possessed a real power over his own people, while he had no legal authority over the Roman provincials. Such an indeterminate situation, after the endeavors so long directed towards the attainment of political independence, could not last long. In 421 or 422, Theodoric fulfilled his agreement by sending a contingent to the Roman army which was marching against the Vandals. But in the decisive battle these troops fell upon the Romans from behind and so helped the Vandals to a brilliant victory. In spite of this base breach of faith, the Goths came off unpunished and even dared to advance southwards to the Mediterranean coast. In the year 425, a Gothic corps was before the important fortress of Arles, the coveted key of the Rhone Valley. But it was forced to retreat by the rapid approach of an army under Aetius. After further fighting, about which unfortunately nothing detailed is known to us, peace was made, and the Goths were granted full sovereignty over the provinces, which had originally been assigned to them for occupation only, Aquitanica Secunda and the northwest corner of Narbonensis Prima, while they restored all their conquests, circa 426. This peace continued for a considerable period and was only interrupted by the unsuccessful attempt of the Goths to surprise Arles, 430. 
But when, in 435, fresh disturbances broke out in Gaul, Theodoric took up once more his plans for the conquest of the whole of Narbonensian Gaul. The Goths went on fighting, but without success, and were at last driven back as far as Toulouse. But in the decisive battle which was fought before the walls of this town, 439, the Romans suffered a severe defeat, and only the heavy loss of life which the Goths themselves sustained could decide the king to agree to the provisional restoration of the status quo. Theodoric was certainly not disposed to be satisfied with the narrow territory surrendered to him. Therefore, circa 422, we find him again on the side of Rome's enemies. First he entered into close relations with Geyseric, the dreaded king of the Vandals. But this coalition, which would have been so dangerous for the Roman Empire, was broken up by the ingenious diplomacy of Aetius. He next tried to attach himself to the powerful and rising kingdom of the Suaves by giving King Rekyar one of his daughters in marriage, and by furnishing troops to assist his advance into Spain, 449. It was only when danger threatened the whole of the civilized West by the rise of the power of the Huns under Attila that the Goths again allied themselves with the Romans. In the beginning of the year 451, Attila's mighty army, estimated at half a million, set out from Hungary, crossed the Rhine at Easter time, and invaded Belgica. It was only now that Aetius, who had been deceived by the false representations of the king of the Huns, thought of offering resistance. But the standing army at his command was absolutely insufficient to hold the field against such a formidable opponent. He found himself, therefore, obliged to beg for help from the king of the Visigoths, who, although he had at first intended to keep himself neutral and await the development of events in his territory, thought, after long hesitation, that it would be in his own interest to obey the call. Theodoric joined the Romans with a fine army which he himself led, accompanied by his sons Thorismud and Theodoric. Attila had, in the meantime, advanced as far as Orléans, which Sangabin, the king of the Alans who were settled there, promised to betray to him. The proposed treachery, however, was frustrated, for the Allies were already on the spot before the arrival of the Huns, and had encamped in strength before the city. Attila thought he could not venture an attack on the strong fortifications with his troops, which principally consisted of cavalry, so he retreated to Troyes and took up a position five miles before that town on an extensive plain near the place called Mariacus, there to await a decisive battle with the Gotho-Roman army which was following him. Attila occupied the center of the Hun array with the picked troops of his people, while both the wings were composed of troops from the subjected German tribes. His opponents were so arranged that Theodoric, with the bulk of the Visigoths, occupied the right wing, Aetius with the Romans, and a part of the Goths under Thorismud, formed the left wing of the army, while the untrustworthy Alans stood in the center. Attila first tried to get possession of a height commanding the battlefield, but Aetius and Thorismud were beforehand, and successfully repulsed all the attacks of the Huns on their position. The king of the Huns now hurled himself with great force on the Visigothic main body commanded by Theodoric. After a long struggle, the Goths succeeded in driving the Huns back to their camp. Great losses occurred on both sides. The aged king of the Goths was among the slain, as was also a kinsman of Attila's. The battle, however, remained drawn, for both sides kept the field. The moral effect, which told for the Romans and their allies, was, however, very important, inasmuch as the belief that the powerful king of the Huns was invincible had suffered a severe shock. 
At first, it was decided to shut up the Huns in their barricade of wagons and starve them out. But when the body of Theodoric, who had been supposed up till then to be among the survivors, had been found and buried, Thorizamud, who was recognized as king by the army, called upon his people to revenge and to take the enemy's position by storm. But Aetius, who did not wish to let the Goths become too powerful, succeeded in persuading Thorizamud to relinquish his scheme, advising his return to Toulouse to prevent any attempt on his brother's part to get possession of the crown by means of the royal horde there. Thus were the Goths deprived of the well-earned fruits of their famous exploit. The Huns returned home unmolested. 451. Thorizamud proved himself anxious to develop the national policy adopted by his father, and in the same spirit. After he had succeeded, for the time being, in keeping possession of the throne, he subdued the Alans who had settled near Orléans, and thereby made preparations for extending the Gothic territory beyond the Loire. Then he tried to bring Arles under his power, but without having attained his object, he returned once more to his country, where in the meanwhile his brothers Theodoric II and Friedrich had stirred up a rebellion. After several armed encounters, Thorizamud was assassinated. 453. Theodoric II succeeded him on the throne. The characteristic mark of his rule is the close, though occasionally interrupted, connection with Rome. The treaty broken under Theodoric I, which implied the supremacy of the empire over the kingdom of Toulouse, was renewed immediately after his accession to the throne. For the rest, this connection was never taken seriously by Theodoric, but was principally used by him as a means towards the attainment of that end which his predecessors had vainly striven for by direct means, the spread of the Visigoth dominion in Gaul, and more especially in Spain. Already in the year 454, Theodoric found an opportunity for activity in the interest of the Roman Empire. A Gothic army under Friedrich marched into Spain and pacified the rebellious Bugade Exoctatorite Romana. After the murder of Valentinian III, March 455, Avitus went as Magister Militum to Gaul to win over the most influential powers of the country for the new emperor, Petronius Maximus. In consequence of his personal influence, he had formerly initiated Theodoric into the knowledge of Roman literature, he succeeded in bringing the king of the Goths to recognize Maximus. When, however, soon after this, the news of the murderer of the emperor arrived, 31 May, Theodoric requested him to take the imperium himself. On 9 July, Avitus, who had been proclaimed emperor, accompanied by Gothic troops, marched into Italy, where he met with universal recognition. The close relations between the empire and the Goths came again into operation against the Swaves. As the latter repeatedly made plundering expeditions into Roman territory, Theodoric, with a considerable force to which the Burgundians also added a contingent, marched over the Pyrenees in the summer of 456, decisively defeated them, and took possession of a large part of Spain, nominally for the empire, but actually for himself. But the state of affairs changed at one stroke when Avitus, in the autumn of the year 456, abdicated the purple. Theodoric had now no longer any interest in adhering to the empire. He had, in fact, required the promotion of Avitus because he enjoyed a great reputation in Gaul, and possessed there a strong support among the resident nobility. Friendship with him could only be of use to the king of the Goths in respect to the Roman provincials living in Toulouse. 
but the elevation of the new emperor Majorian on 1 April 457 had occurred in direct opposition to the wishes of the Gallo-Roman nobility to place one of themselves upon the imperial throne. Taking advantage of the consequent discord in Gaul, Theodoric appeared as the open foe of the imperial power of Rome. He himself marched with an army into the Gallic province of Narbonne, and once more began with the siege of Arles. He also sent troops to Spain, which, however, only fought with varying success. But in the winter of 458, the emperor appeared in Gaul with considerable forces, quieted the rebellious Burgundians, and obliged the Visigoths to raise the blockade of Arles and again conclude peace. Spring, 459. Although in the year 461 yet another change took place on the imperial throne, Theodoric thought it more advantageous for the time being to maintain, at least formally, the imperial alliance. On the other hand, the chief general, Aegidius, a faithful follower of Majorian, supported by a fine army, marched against the new imperial ruler. In the conflict which then ensued, Theodoric found a favorable opportunity for resuming his policy of expansion in Gaul. At the call of Count Agrippinus, who was commanding in Narbonne and was hard-pressed by Aegidius, he marched into the Roman territory and quartered upon that important town Gothic troops under the command of his brother Friedrich, 462. Driven out of southern Gaul, Aegidius turned northwards, whither a Gothic army led by Friedrich followed him. A great battle took place near Orléans, in which the Goths suffered a severe defeat, chiefly through the bravery of the Salian Franks, who were opposed to them and lost their leader in the battle. 463. Taking advantage of the victory, Aegidius now began to press victoriously into the Visigoth territory, but sudden death prevented him from carrying out his purposes. 464. Theodoric, freed from his most dangerous enemy, did not delay making good the losses he had suffered. But he died in the year 466 at the hand of his brother Euric, who was a champion of the anti-Roman national party and now ascended the throne. Contemporaries agree in describing the new king as characterized by great energy and warlike ability. We may venture to add from historical facts that he was also a man of distinguished political talent. The leading idea in his policy, the entire rejection of even a formal suzerainty of the Roman Empire, came into operation on his accession to the throne. The embassy which he then sent off to the emperor of eastern Rome can only have had for its object a request for the recognition of the Visigoth sovereignty. As no agreement was arrived at, he tried to bring about an alliance with the Vandals and the Suebes. But the negotiations came to nothing when a strong East Roman fleet appeared in African waters, 467. Uruk at first pursued a neutral course, but as the Roman expedition, set on foot with such considerable effort against the Vandal kingdom, resulted so lamentably, 468, he did not hesitate to come forward as assailant while he simultaneously pushed forward his troops into Gaul and Spain, 469. He opened hostilities in Gaul with a sudden attack on the Bretons, whom the emperor had sent to the town of Bourges. At Diol, not far from Chateauroux, a battle took place in which the Bretons were overthrown. Yet the Goths did not succeed in pushing forward over the Loire to the north. Count Paulus, supported by Frankish auxiliaries, successfully opposed them here. Euric therefore concentrated his whole strength partly on the conquest of the province of Equitanica Prima, 
partly on the annexation of the lower Rhone Valley, especially the long-coveted Arles. The provinces of Novempopulana and, for the most part, Narbonensis Prima, had been probably already occupied by the Goths under Theodoric II, an army which the West Roman Emperor Anthemius sent to Gaul for the relief of Arles was defeated in the year 470 or 471, and for the time being a large part of Provence was seized by the Goths. In Aquitanica Prima, also, town after town fell into the hands of Yurik's general Victorious. Only Clermont, the capital city of Auvergne, obstinately defied the repeated attacks of the barbarians for many years. The moving spirits in the resistance were the brave Actitius, a son of the former Emperor Avitus, and the poet Sidonius Apollinaris, who had been its bishop from about 470. The letters of the latter give us a clear picture of the struggle which was waged with the greatest animosity on both sides. Yurik is said to have stated that he would rather give up the much more valuable Septimania than renounce the possession of that town. The wholly impotent Western Empire was unable to do anything for the besieged. In the year 475, peace was at last made between the Emperor Nepos and Yurik by the intervention of Bishop Epiphanius of Ticinum Pavia. Unfortunately, the conditions are not more accurately known, but there can be no doubt that, besides the previously conquered territory in Spain, the district between the Loire, the Rhone, the Pyrenees, and the two seas was relinquished to Yurik in sovereign possession. Thus Auvergne, so fiercely contended for, was surrendered to the Goths. But in spite of this important success, the king of the Goths had by no means reached the goal of his desires. It may be seen from the line of policy he followed later that the present moment seemed to him fit for carrying out that subjection of the whole of the West, which had long since been the aim of Alaric I. For this reason, peace only lasted for a year, which was spent in settling internal affairs. The most important event under Yurik's government at this time is the publication of a code of law which was intended to settle the legal relations of the Goths, both amongst themselves and with the Romans who had come under the Gothic dominion. The deposition of the last West Roman emperor, Romulus, by the leader of the mercenaries, Udavasar, September 476, gave the king a welcome reason for renewing hostilities, as he looked upon the treaty made with the empire as dissolved. A Gothic army crossed the Rhone and obtained final possession of the whole of southern Provence, as far as the Maritime Alps, together with the cities of Arles and Marseille, after a victorious battle against the Burgundians, who had ruled over this district under Roman suzerainty. But when Yurik also marched a body of troops into Italy, it suffered defeat from the officers of Odovasar. Consequently, a treaty was concluded by the East Roman Emperor Zeno and the King of the Burgundians, whereby the newly conquered territory in Gaul, between the Rhone and the Alps south of the Durance, was surrendered by Odovasar to the Goths, while Yurik evidently pledged himself to undertake no further hostilities against Italy, circa 477. Yurik was incessantly harassed by the difficulties of defending this mighty conquest from foes without and within. In particular, very frequent cause for interference was given by the conduct of the Catholic clergy, who openly showed their disloyalty, and, in the Vandal kingdom, did not shrink from the most treacherous actions. 
yet they seem only in rare instances to have been answered by violence and cruelty. The Saxon pirates who, according to old custom, infested the coast of Gaul were vigorously punished by a fleet sent out against them. In the same way, it seems that an invasion of the Salian Franks was warded off successfully. It is not strange that, owing to the prestige of the Visigoth power, Euric's help was repeatedly requested by other peoples, as by the Heruli, Warni, and Tulingi, who, settled in the Netherlands, found themselves threatened by the overwhelming might of the Franks, and owed to the intervention of the Gothic king the maintenance of their political existence. The poet Sidonius Apollinaris has left behind a vivid description of the way in which, at that time, the representatives of the most diverse nations pressed round Uruk at the Visigoth court. Even the Persians are said to have formed an alliance with him against the Eastern Empire. It seems that envoys from the Roman population of Italy also appeared at Toulouse to ask the king to expel Odovasar, whose rule was only reluctantly endured by the Italians. We do not know if Yurik intended gratifying this last request. In any case, he was prevented from executing any such designs through death, which overtook him in Arles in December 484. Under his son Alaric II, the Visigoth power fell from its height. To be sure, the beginning of the decline originated at a time further back. Athulf's political program, as already observed, had originally contemplated the establishment of a national Gothic state in the place of the Roman Empire. Yet not one of the Visigoth rulers, in spite of honest purpose, could accomplish this task. It is to their credit that they succeeded at last, after severe fighting, in freeing themselves from the suzerainty of the emperor and obtaining political autonomy. But the state which thus resulted resembled a Germanic national state no more than it did a Roman imperium, and it could not contain the seeds of life because it was in a great measure dependent on foreign obsolescent institutions. The Goths had entered the world of Roman civilization too suddenly to be able either to resist or to absorb the foreign influences which pressed in on them from all sides. It was fortunate for the progress of Romanization that the Goths, cut off from the rest of the German world, could not draw thence fresh strength to recuperate their nationality or to replace their losses, and moreover that, through the immense extension of the kingdom under Europe, the numerical proportion between the Roman and Gothic population had altered very much in favor of the former. So, under the circumstances, it was a certainty that the Gothic kingdom in Gaul must succumb to the rising and politically creative power of the Franks. Neither the personality of Alaric, who was little fitted for ruling, nor the antagonism between Catholicism and Arianism caused the downfall. They only hastened it. End of section 35